Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of GUCast. This is Declan Murphy, urologist at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne, bringing you um, a special episode today in collaboration with our friends at eurotoday.com, uh, which, is, of course, is a fantastic uh, resource for all matters urology. Um, we've collaborated with Gina and her team before in uh, cross-posting some podcasts that we've been involved with. And today we're very happy that my co-host on the show, uh, Dr. Renu Epen, who's a urologist here at Peter Mac, um, has been interviewed by Dr. Ashish Kamat, who is a friend of ours, of course, on GUCast, having been uh, on the show before talking about bladder cancer. And today, Ashish um, is interviewing Renu, and their topic is urinary diversion in women following radical uh, cystectomy. Um, you can see the whole video online on eurotoday.com, along with some supporting slides. Uh, but what we bring you today um, is the audio, uh, which is really most enjoyable as well uh, as a podcast. So thanks again to our friends at eurotoday.com and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Eurotoday's Bladder Cancer Center of Excellence. I'm Ashish Kamat, Professor of Urology at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. And it's my pleasure today to welcome Dr. Renu Epen, who is urologist at Peter Mac Cancer Center and the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Center in Austin Health, joining us today all the way from Australia. Uh, welcome, Renu. Hello there. Good morning or good evening to you guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, you know, we've been chatting about bladder cancer and cystectomy and, and women and, and everything sort of seemed to come together based on your interest in this particular field. And I thought it'd be wonderful for you to spend some first presenting and then discussing with us for the benefit of our audience, the various points to consider both for patients and practitioners when it comes to choices of diversion for women after radical cystectomy. So um, go ahead, Reno, take it away. Fantastic. Thank you, Ashish. And uh, again, thank you for this invitation to talk about an, a topic uh, that I think is really understudied. Um, and that's really looking at outcomes of women after radical cystectomy and how that really influences the choice of, of diversion uh, in these women. Um, so as you all know, bladder cancer is common. It's, it's one of the most common cancers uh, worldwide uh, with an incidence of about 500,000 a year. Um, and we know that radical cystectomy is really the standard of care for muscle invasive bladder cancer or recurrent high risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Um, we know that there are gender-related differences um, in both oncological and functional outcomes after radical cystectomy and diversion, but the data really is quite contradictory. Um, there is a growing body of evidence via meta-analyses, um, population-based studies, and collaborative systematic reviews that suggest that female gender may be associated with worse oncological outcomes. Women tend to present with more advanced disease at the time of diagnosis, and they tend to have a higher risk of recurrence and progression um, and death after treatment as well. Um, the evidence for um, gender-specific differences look at in terms of functional outcomes really is lacking, but we know from small series that there are differences in urinary and sexual function and health-related quality of life between men and women. So why are there these gender differences? Well, there are multiple explanations for this. Um, firstly, there may be social determinants such as delays in diagnosis and access to treatment. Um, there may be various healthcare disparities um, based on issues that are influenced by gender. So women tend to have a lower rate of referrals to urologists. Um, uh, there could be a perception that urologists really are doctors for male problems. 
Um, women tend to have multiple courses of antibiotics prior to the diagnosis of bladder cancer. And in fact, having a diagnosis of a UTI has been found to be a predictor for, uh, of a delay in bladder cancer diagnosis. Um, there are also biological determinants, um, so the genetic factors um, that drive um, disease in initiation are different in men and women. Uh, women tend to have variant histologies, so basal molecular subtypes with squamous or sarcomatoid uh, histology that is associated with um, the worse uh, stage and survival. The response treatment may be different, uh, different and it's thought that the hormonal axis uh, which may be different, um, which may be important in bladder cancer development and progression is different between men and women. Um, in terms of urinary diversion choices, we know that there are, there are traditionally three different choices. Um, the most common ones really are the ileal conduit or the incontinent diversion uh, and the orthotopic neobladder, which is the continent diversion. Um, continent cutaneous reservoirs are also used, although less commonly than the other two in my experience. Whereas a, 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 a conduit is really a straightforward option for both physicians and patients, uh, when it comes to continent diversions such as a neobladder, patient selection becomes really important. We all know uh, about the advantages of a neobladder, but it's important to highlight to patients the main disadvantages. Um, and this includes uh, incontinence, uh, it includes chronic retention requiring self-capitalization, metabolic consequences, and the need for a quite strict training regimes. And as with anything, um, the selection really comes down to patient factors, disease factors, and surgeon factors. So while um, age is not necessarily a contraindication, patients should be of good general health and their comorbidities should be taken into account. They should have reasonable physical and cognitive capacity, um, and they should be motivated and be compliant with training programs. In terms of disease factors, the extent of disease at the bladder neck and, the, and, 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 and in men, the prostatic apex should be taken into consideration. And surgeon factors are important. So it's been shown that surgeon experience can actually predict um, post-procedure quality of life. So surgeon volume and experience is also important. When looking at functional outcomes in women after radical cystectomy, you're look, really looking at three main domains, and that's urinary function, sexual function, and health-related quality of life. And the data in this uh, regard is really limited. Um, and the reason for this is that women are excluded from many series. The sample sizes are often very small. Um, there, a lot of studies don't use validated measuring tools or questionnaires, and there's a lot of variation in reporting and in surgical technique. Um, there are a few studies that really assess women alone, um, and in studies that combine genders, um, although initially gender appears to be a predictor for worse outcomes, when it's included in multivariable models with other factors such as age and preoperative continence, um, gender tends to lose significance. Um, one of the earliest uh, system, or well, the first systematic review really by, was by Smith's group um, and published in 2017. And this was the first systematic review that looked at functional outcomes in women after radical cystectomy and any type of diversion. Um, they looked at about 55 studies and all these studies had a high risk of bias. They ranged in sample size, inclusion criteria, follow-up time. Um, and it really meant that they weren't able to do a meaningful meta-analysis. Uh, less than half the studies used standardized instruments. 
But what they found was the rate of daytime and nighttime incontinence were about 20% each, and the rate of hypercontinence or chronic retention was about 10 to 20%. Um, and sexual function, um, although it were, uh, uh, sexual function was generally poor in those undergoing routine radical cystectomy, but it was slightly better in genitalia sparing surgery. Health-related quality of life, um, there was minimal differences between diversion types, um, but certainly significant compared to the general population. And the sort of recurring issues were emotional issues, role functioning, appetite, um, fatigue uh, in women. Um, Kim's group uh, looked at uh, 142 patients after cystectomy and neoplatter formation, and it was a mix of men and women uh, with only a small proportion of women, only 23 women. And the group classified these women, uh, these patients according to urodynamic voiding parameters of their neobladders. So they identified the ideal group, which had good bladder capacity, um, normal compliance, and emptied well with low residual volumes. Uh, group two uh, had low capacity and higher rates of incontinence with lower compliance. And group three was on the other side of the spectrum with large residual volumes. Um, and they found that women were more likely to belong to group two or three. So they were more likely to be incontinent or, be, or have chronic retention and need catheterization. In their multivariate analysis, they found that age and male gender actually predicted for the ideal urodynamic voiding pattern uh, in their neobladders. And what about pelvic organ preserving surgery? Now, we all know that radical cystectomy is really a different technique uh, in women than in men. And historically, um, women have undergone a full pelvic exenteration, including removing the bladder, the uterus, ovaries, anterior vaginal wall. Um, and now with advancements in imaging and in neoadjuvant chemotherapy and surgical technique, there's been a move uh, from full pelvic exenteration to considering women for pelvic organ uh, preserving or nerve preserving surgery. Um, again, the data is really scarce, but it is thought to improve continence rates, although studies have shown varying outcomes depending on the time points at which this is assessed. Um, and the techniques are also thought to improve sexual function by preserving the anterior vagina wall and the lateral neurovascular bundles of the vagina and blood supply to the clitoris. Again, there's a lot of heterogeneity in the data surrounding pelvic organ uh, preserving surgery. And, and the studies are really, really quite, and the data is really quite embryonic and really you need prospective trials in this regard. But this group published in 2017, they did a systematic review to look at the effects of pelvic organ preservation on functional and oncological outcomes in women compared to radical cystectomy and uh, compared to standard radical cystectomy and neobladder formation. They reviewed 15 studies, uh, including over 870 women. And they saw that in the studies that looked at sexual function, about 86% of women were able to resume sexual activity within six months of surgery with a median sex sexual satisfaction score of over 85%. In terms of urinary function, the, uh, the data was, was really widely ranging. So continence rates um, were varied between 40 to 100%, and the catheterization rates varied between 10 and 80%. From an oncological point of view, the, the cancer-specific and overall survival were really comparable. <coughs> 
Um, Zips group in uh, 2004 published uh, about sexual function in a small cohort of women, 27 women who underwent radical cystectomy, and they used the Validated Female Sexual Function Index, or the FSFI. These women underwent um, uh, a range of diversions, um, neobladders, cotton, cutaneous continent diversion, and ileal conduit. And they found that only about 48% of women were able to have successful vaginal intercourse. 22% had vaginal pain. And overall, about 50, over 50% 50 of women had decreased satisfaction with their sexual function since radical cystectomy, with the main issues being inability to achieve orgasm, uh, decreased lubrication, et cetera. The same group then, published, then did a subset analysis two years later, looking at um, patients post-nerve-sparing radical, post -nerve -sparing radical cystectomy and neobladder formation, and they found that although, um, uh, and they found that most patients in the non-nerve-sparing group ultimately um, discontinued sexual activity, and the study showed that while all domains of sexual function uh, had declined in the non-nerve-sparing group, the FSFI scores were able to be preserved in women who underwent nerve-sparing radical cystectomy. Looking at health-related quality of life in women after radical cystectomy, most of these studies combine genders. Um, when you compare uh, neobladder versus conduit diversion, there's really minimal differences seen, and gender has not been seen to be a significant predictor of quality of life. Um, Goldberg's group uh, published in 2015 looking at long-term quality of life outcomes. That's a minimum of one year post-surgery um, compared between patients undergoing radical, uh, compared between patients who've had radical cystectomy followed by a conduit diversion and those having a neobladder diversion. Um, they looked at um, urinary function, sexual function and level of bother using uh, the bladder cancer index questionnaire. They found that when it came to urinary function, um, the conduit group scored better with bother scores being equal in the, in the two groups. And when it came to sexual function, the neobladder group scored better with bother scores being less in the neobladder group than in the conduit group. With time, patients tended to have improved urinary function, worsening sexual function, but they were less likely to be bothered by that decline in sexual function. So this group um, concluded that when you're counseling patients who are electing to have neobladder reconstruction, they should, really be they should really be warned about the risk of bother from urinary incontinence and the risk of sexual dysfunction. And in those who are electing to have condu uh, conduit diversions, they can be fairly reassured that their expected quality of life won't be uh, significantly compromised. Looking specifically at quality of life after a uh, neobladder, Zaran's group in 2014 um, published um, looking at 72 women post cystectomy and neobladder with a one-year follow-up. They divided patients into three groups, so those who are completely continent, those who had nighttime incontinence, and those who had chronic urinary retention. And they found that um, women who had nighttime incontinence had worse overall quality of life than those who were continent or those who required catheterization. So nighttime incontinence really had a negative impact on most domains of quality of life. Looking at quality of life after ileal conduit, um, uh, this group in 2018 compared women of uh, compared outcomes of men and women after uh, radical cystectomy and ileal conduit diversion, and only about a third of these uh, patients were women. Um, they found that while sexual function was worse in men undergoing an ileal conduit, women tended to experience a greater burden in terms of postoperative cognitive function and in terms of future perspectives. 
So there are many things to consider when it comes to women undergoing radical cystectomy. We know that gender negatively can affect oncological outcome after treatment for bladder cancer. Um, we also can see that characterization of functional outcomes, urinary, sexual, and health-related quality of life is really poor. Um, it can be seen that nighttime incontinence and sexual dissatisfaction definitely negatively impact quality of life. And the recurring themes seem to be difficulty with lubrication, difficulty with orgasm, and painful intercourse when it comes to sexual dysfunction. Um, there is some uh, early evidence to show that pelvic organ preservation and nerve sparing techniques at the time of cystectomy in very carefully selected patients may help to mitigate some of these effects. Um, for instance, preserving the urethra can help to maintain clitoral blood flow that may help with orgasm. Preserving the anterior vaginal um, and lateral nerve bundles may help with sensation and lubrication. Um, preserving the ovaries in, in younger women may help with estrogen-mediated vascularization um, of, of the uh, female pelvic organs. So knowing how gender affects outcomes can make it a possible target to improve outcomes just by modifying techniques. But, you know, there are main, major gaps in knowledge in this area, and we definitely need further prospective trials to, to fill those gaps. So that was that was really well done, Renu, and, and a lot of information in a very short um, time. Um, could I ask you a few questions? You know, it, it's one of those things where when you sit down and you talk to a patient um, and you're actually counseling them one-on-one -on -one, over the last 20 years, you know, my conversation with the patients really changed in the way I portray the different diversions. Um, could I have you walk our audience through how you would counsel a, say, a, a relatively healthy 63-year-old woman who's needing a radical cystectomy for T2 disease and has good expected outcomes after the surgery? So I think um, when counseling patients, it's important to tailor it to that particular patient. So I think before giving them advice on, on or, or recommendations on what the diversion techniques are, it's important to know what's important to them. Um, so it's important to find out um, what their quality of life is like, what their current urinary sexual function is like, and what their expectations are after the surgery. So I think a lot of it is about managing expectations. Um, and you, you know, I, I've always been told in my training that nobody should ever talk you into doing a neobladder and you should never talk a patient into doing a neobladder. So I sort of, um, if, if, a neo, if a continent diversion is appropriate for them based on their disease characteristics, because oncological outcome is, is really the most important thing, um, then, then I sort of, I put all options to them and give them the pros and cons. Um, and really it takes a, quite a motivated patient wanting a continent diversion um, to really proceed in that way. It should be a joint decision with the patient and with the surgeon. So, I mean, I, I tend to start my counselling by really finding out what's important to them and what would give them the greatest level of satisfaction after surgery. Um, and, uh, and I let that sort of guide the conversation. I'm sure you, you know, just like I get the question. So that's all well and good doc, but what would you do if you were me? So, I mean, and I answer that very honestly, you know, I, I tell them, I mean, for, for me, I think if, if, onco if my disease permitted it, then I would want a well-created neobladder. 
Um, and I would and I would honestly say that to them in a, in a patient who was considering a neobladder. Um, and I would tell them why. And I would say that although despite there are these issues with a neobladder, these are the things that I'm willing to do to 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 make it work. It's a long-term, lifelong investment. So I, I answer that question very honestly, actually. That's good. That's good. You know, it's it's funny because uh, there are f- patients that will come and see me from different centers in the U.S. and elsewhere and say, oh, when I went to this place, they said, absolutely, you should never have a neobladder. You should only have a conduit. Or I went to this place and they said, oh, if you don't have a neobladder, then you're just going to be, you know, holed up in your room and never be able to enjoy life and, and you'll just die a miserable death. So I think what you said about presenting a fair and balanced uh, viewpoint on, on each of the diversions and letting the patient choose what he or she, in this case, she would like to do is absolutely critical. Um, Have you ever felt um, the need to um, sort of counsel a patient against a selection that she might be making? And if so, what sort of parameters do you use to make that decision? So the answer is yes. Um, you know, some patients come to you wanting a neobladder and they've been told previously that they that they shouldn't have one and they, they want to hear the answer, yes, I, I, I can get a neobladder. And, and the thing that makes, and I find that these are actually quite motivated patients. So from a motivation and compliance point of view, they are, they are ideal patients. But the thing that deters me often is their disease. And especially when it comes to women, um, because although women, you know, you, you want to give them a neobladder if they can and they, and they want one, their disease is often quite advanced. Um, and the, the women often present with nasty disease. And it's usually the disease para- parameters that, that tend to deter um, me from, from recommending a neobladder. Okay. Um, so do you ever look at the patient's um, other factors, such as potentially their ability to keep appointments or, or follow up their social, not necessarily socioeconomic status, but some of the limitations that their lifestyle would uh, impose upon them when you're making these uh, treatment recommendation uh, decisions? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think that that comes under the motivation and compliance um, point of view, and and their ability to to understand what's going on with their disease, their ability to keep appointments, um, their ability to seek further information about uh, about the diversion choices. I think all gives you an indication of how compliant these patients are, um, and. Uh, certainly, I you know if if I can see that a patient is not quite fitting into that category, then I make sure that I address their preconceived ideas about what a neobladder might be, um, and really make sure that they understand that a neobladder is is something that requires a lot of effort from them. Um, my, some of my mentors here in Melbourne um, kind of. Um, uh, use the analogy of a conduit versus neobladder as having a, a, a like a Volvo versus a Rolls Royce, you know, Volvo's easy maintenance. It doesn't really matter if you bang it anywhere. Um, but a Rolls Royce, while it's amazing, it takes a lot of investment, care and effort to look after it. And so I just, I, I often think that patients who come in demanding one over the other have some preconceived ideas that you really need to sort of try and address debunk some of the myths and make sure they know what the reality is. Uh, That's an interesting analogy. I I hadn't quite heard it uh, put that way. Um, Almost makes me think that uh, you would prefer to drive a a Rolls-Royce versus a Volvo. Is that that what you're hinting at? 
Oh, well, I mean, <laughs> of course, but, you know, uh, I, I think a, a Volvo that, you know, you can just park anywhere, fit into tight spaces, it doesn't matter if it gets a little bit scratched. It's, you know, it's, it's a load off your mind. You don't have to worry about it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and that's what a conduit is. You know, it's, it's an easy, it's an easy solution. Yeah. And, and oftentimes, you know, it is obviously what the patient's comfort level is. I mean, I've had patients who are in their 20s who have disease where they're not expected really, even though we, we think we, we'll get them cured with metastatic disease may not live many years. And and they select a conduit because they don't want to train a neobladder and, and put in the time if they're not sure they're going to have a long life. And lo and behold, some of them are many years out and still alive. And the yeah. amount of physical activity, some of them are, you know, triathletes and, and doing stuff with a conduit, right? So a lot of yeah. it is, as you said, a, a mental thing. Um, you know, we could we could chat forever, but obviously, in the interest of time, I, I, we do have to wrap up. Any closing thoughts uh, for our listeners? Um, I, I think uh, you know, with any sort of cancer surgery, you want to consider the, the the triad or the or the four things that are that are most important in in the outcome of that surgery: oncological outcome and then functional outcome. So, in this case, urinary function, uh, function, sexual function. They're all important. And I think the main thing when it comes to counselling patients is to um, find out what their expectations are and then address those and, and tailor it to that particular patient. There's no right fit for everyone. Well said. Very well said. Um, thank you once again for taking the time um, during you know this crazy 2020 that we have, uh, spending time with us yeah. talking about this important um, issue. Um, stay safe and stay well. Thank you so much for having me, Ashish. Really appreciate it.